Thank you, Pastor Paul, for uh, inviting me back again. It's always good to be here to worship with you. I love how your songs are so gospel-centered uh, when you sing worship songs to, to our God, so I really appreciate that. Uh, I have a, f- a few things I want to say before we look at the Scriptures today. And um, first of all is, um, you know, I was a pastor, senior pastor at a church up in Lancaster, California, a couple hours north of here for 12 years. And, uh, you know, that's a whole long story in and of itself. But part of uh, our experience there together is I took church planting teams over to East Asia a couple times a year. And at one point in the life of our church, 75% of our people had gone. And 50% of those gone more than once. And so they really saw it as a project as a church that were called to be planting churches, especially in places like Bo and this, this video just, just mentioned. And so I uh, currently I'm leading an organization called Church Assistance Ministry, and uh, we do a lot of different things. You can look us up on the internet. Uh, but what I do with them mainly is I travel to uh, primarily South Asia, and I train pastors and I train church planters in the areas where there are thousands of those unreached peoples still yet to be reached. So those are some of the places that I go, and I'll probably mention some of that a little bit later on this morning. But I also wanted to pass along some greetings because in God's uh, providential design, uh, unbeknownst to both your church here and our church up in Lancaster, Lancaster Evangelical Free Church, it's now called Trinity Community, um, we were doing all of this in a particular region in East Asia, but it was only many, many years later that we realized, well, so were you. And we were actually working with a lot of the same people, and that's how eventually I got to know Bo and some others from the church. And, uh, and also, uh, I end up coaching some of those guys by Skype every month. And so um, last Monday, I was on the phone with uh, some mutual friends of ours in East Asia, and I said, uh, I didn't tell them where I was going, but I said, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to be speaking at a church where you have a lot of mutual, we have a lot of mutual friends, and I'll pass along your greetings. So greetings from, you know, the Covenant Church in, in our beloved city. Uh, they pass along your greetings. And also one of the most interesting things when I was uh, talking with them this last week, of course, is the coronavirus issue. And uh, at that point, uh, it, there wasn't an imposed uh, what do they call that? Quarantine. There wasn't an imposed quarantine in the city, but our friends had self-imposed the quarantine. And then now they're in a real one for the, indefinitely, two, three months. Uh, this is what they told me, at least on the 17th of this month when I talked to them. But I asked, of course, you know, my first concern is, well, you know, you know how's the church doing? Um, and, uh, and they said, well, it's been very interesting because a couple um, things have happened. Of course, we can't gather anymore. Uh, in public, it's too difficult and too dangerous, and uh, for for not just health reasons, of course, but other reasons. And so, um, so our our friend, our pastor, uh, you know, you know him. Uh, he 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 preaches his sermons from his bedroom and posts them online. And so the worship team gets together online at a certain time to do worship, and the church meets online. It's all online. And uh, and I thought, well, that that's really interesting. How's that going? And <clears throat> he said, well, we've actually had to double the number of Bible studies we offer because people keep signing up for things and we don't have enough leaders. Because, well, one thing, you don't have anything to do when you're sitting in your apartment all day long. But on the other hand, there are a lot of other smaller community fellowships around the city and some uh, in other locations that don't have the, uh, the ability to put off, pull off something like that, like our friends do online. And so they've started joining too. 
And so the Lord's really been using uh, this time as a wonderful opportunity, and thank God that He's given creativity to these Christian leaders and people in the church to continue to spread the Word of God even in the midst of all this fear and uncertainty. So uh, continue to pray for them, and they pass along their greetings to you. So greetings, Crossway Church, from our friends in East Asia. Um, all right, now you can show my photo. I wanted to show you. I'm leaving in three weeks. Uh, so you can pray for me. March 22nd, I'm heading over to South Asia. And this is just a snapshot of one of the recent trainings I did in October. So in October, I was in both East and South Asia. Um, but here, I'm actually teaching them how to coach leaders, how to coach leaders for leadership development. And so we have this extensive program in training, uh, training uh, pastors and church planters, um, I can tell you more about it later. It's a very extensive program. We're, we're now in three different major locations in, in South Asia. But this time, I have to teach some things I haven't taught in a long time, so you can pray for me. I have to teach on the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christology, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and I have to teach on coaching for leadership. So that, that's the fun one, the easy one. I can do that in my sleep. But, uh, but teaching doctrines, again, will be so much fun to be there. So... Uh, so that's coming up March 2nd, so you can be praying for me uh, for that trip as well. Well, let me pray, and let's look at uh, God's Word uh, together this morning. I want to start with some words from the epistle to Timothy. It says, The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Lord God, we come before you this morning as your people eager to look at your word and what you have taught us, what you've revealed about yourself, how you want to uh, change our lives. And we know that one of the purposes is to increase our love and our love that comes out of a purified heart, clean conscience, and a sincere faith. So we pray that you would accomplish these things by your spirit, Lord Jesus, this morning as we look into your word, uh, that we would be more faithful, more useful to you, uh, more excited about what you're doing in the world and that you would give us even greater clarity, clarity even for this church as a whole, and how they can become more involved in what you are doing around the world. And we pray these things for Jesus' name. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. So let me read those to you. Um, they're on the screen. But you're going to want your finger in your text anyway, so you should open your Bibles. Uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in this passage of scripture in First Peter, and what I've been charged to talk about this morning is what's, what's really uh, part of being a part of the church all about anyway. What's it about? And we learn from this passage that it's our identity in Christ, who we are in him, it obligates us to proclaim the excellencies of God. Well, first and foremost to him, to proclaim his own excellencies back to him in worship, but also to proclaim those excellencies to the world in mission, because they don't know, as we just saw on the screen. And so this morning, we're going to see a biblical theology for missions, that's one thing that we're going to see as we go through this passage. And the second thing we're going to see is that missions is for the whole church. It's not just for certain individuals. It's for all of us to be involved, whatever level God calls us. So God has created a new people in Christ. 
And in verse 9, we, see, we will see that all four of these names have really one purpose. And then in verse 10, we're, we're reminded that we're supposed to always be remembering these realities. These are extremely important truths about who we are as Christians and what our calling is in the world. Now, it's always difficult to jump right into the middle of a book of the Bible, of course. I'll tell you a little bit more about First Peter as we go through it. But it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, and that's for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that in the early church, this book was often used as a discipleship manual, if you will. First Peter was. And one of the reasons I think that's the case is because there are so many topics that are covered in First Peter. Now, if you've had the privilege of working with a new believer and all the questions they have about how to live their lives and doctrinal questions that they might have, First Peter is a great place to take them because so much is covered. Or maybe you're a brand new Christian and you're trying to figure this Christianity thing out. First Peter is one of the best books to read. It's so short, um, but it's also got so much information in it. And another reason I really like the book of First Peter is because it is the book in the New Testament that has the most densely populated references to the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So in other words, 1 Peter is almost, almost every single verse is referencing something in the Old Testament. So if you've ever wondered how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, well, 1 Peter is the book for you. Because as you understand how Peter puts that all together with the gospel, you'll be better equipped to read the whole of scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments. So we'll see some of that as we go through this today. So you probably already noticed, if you've read some of your Bible before, especially in Exodus 19, when God gave the Ten Commandments, remember that story? Um, There are allusions in this passage to that right there from Exodus 19. And there are also mentions here from Isaiah 43, 21. Um, So these terms are very rich, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, are very rich throughout the Bible and throughout the Old Testament history. Of course, then speaking very clearly about ethnic Israel and national Israel, depending on the time frame, both in their exodus and in their exile, all those types, those time frames. But these terms, the Apostle Peter is now saying, and this is extremely important, they now apply to all Christians. And they apply better now in the history of redemption than they ever have. That's what he's doing here. So you notice he's just taking Exodus 19, the story, and, and writing it down. It's part of Scripture, the New Testament. Exodus 19 says at Sinai, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you know exactly where Peter is getting this from. And in Isaiah 43, uh, looking toward the the post-exilic return of the people, there's a prophecy given, and he talks about my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Where do you think he gets the phrase that we're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? He gets it from the meditation upon the prophets, and specifically Isaiah. So there's more to come, but I want us to just look at these four names briefly together. So the first one is a chosen race, or, and as I'm entitling it this morning, these are four new names for us, for the people of God. So we are like a new chosen race. Now, historically, of course, race is referring to the physical descendants of Abraham. That's 
what the passage was talking about. And historically, of course, the chosen people are referring to the Israelites when they were called out of Egypt in the Exodus. But the new historical reality in the fullness of time in Christ is that a new chosen race has been formed. This race, if you will, would eventually be made up of all the racial groups throughout the world who believe in Jesus Christ. And this chosen, this chosen group would also be set apart from the rest of humanity, set apart, called out from the sinful dark world, and called into his marvelous light and being reformed in a new character. Now, I love preaching First uh, Peter 2, 9, and 10 these days because when you look at some of the phrases in here, they are so offensive to our culture today. So I love them. So it's just really interesting. So chosen race is such a great term, but it sounds so politically volatile today. And it sounds, it's almost like socially dangerous. You know, what did you talk about in church today? Oh, we talked about how we're the chosen race. I mean, that's not a good thing to say. But then again, maybe that's where some of its power really is in our world. Because then we can talk about what we really mean in Jesus Christ. And, you know, so much is observable in the world. You know, the only problem, the only solution to the problem of racism in the world is going to be Jesus Christ. There is no other solution. We know that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you wouldn't know it living in this country, but to the places that I travel to in South Asia, racism is a way bigger problem than it is here. And the tribalism and the murders and the kidnappings and all these things that happen. And one of the biggest questions that the people we train have is, how do we reconcile our tribal histories? How do we uh, grant forgiveness? What does the gospel really mean? to be lived out in our culture. And the fact is, is that in these parts of the world where I travel, Christians are not only the only ones trying to solve it, they're actually making progress in solving problems, both at the church and community level, society level, but even politically. Christians are way out ahead of the rest of the world on this issue. Everyone else likes to just talk. But Christians get it done because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's get back to the text. Main point is that believers, we have, we have so much in common, the Apostle Peter is saying here. Our bond, in other words, in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit is so tight that it's as if God were actually creating a new race of people. It's that close. We share a common heritage in the faith of Abraham and the obedience of Moses. There's so much to carry over from these chosen race passages in the Old Testament, and you can do it on your own. But ultimately, our identity is what matters, and our identity in, in God and in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are one in Christ. We are Ab all Abraham's offspring. We are all heirs according to the promise. So think about this strong bond of unity that we share being Christians. That's another blessing of, of being able to get out and, and minister in different places in the world is that you get to see that it doesn't matter where people come from. If they're believers in Jesus Christ, it's like immediately your spirit is tied to theirs because you are committed to the same truth. You've been transformed by the same gospel. You're committed to the same purpose and mission in the world. But I want you to see something. 
you know, you're not, this name has a purpose. So if you look in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, and you sort of skip over to the end, what, what's the point? Why? It's so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you've been made a part of God's new people, his chosen race. The second term that's used is royal priesthood. So this one is an interesting title for us. It, it's combining, talking about royalty and priesthood. If you know your Old Testament well, you know that these two offices don't get combined. They're not supposed to. But they were in a few examples that predicted Jesus Christ. For example, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Uh, you should know that, that passage. It's the most quoted passage in the Old Testament in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is quoted more than anything else in the Old Testament and on Jesus' own lips. Okay? So it's very important because it talks about him as being both king and priest. And we have a prediction of, of this all back in Abraham's day with the king and the priest Melchizedek. And he preceded the Levitical priesthood. And therefore, it supersedes it and what it predicts in Jesus Christ. And David and Solomon would eventually predict the greatest king ever who would come in their line, and that would be Jesus Christ. And the whole book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it's all about understanding this and how Jesus is our last greatest high priest and the king of kings. Well, you see, here's another way. So if chosen race term is being transformed by the apostle Peter in the New Testament in a certain way so that we understand who we really are, so is royal priesthood. It's being transformed. I mean, it's referenced when God called out his people, but we share in this royalty and in this priestliness with Jesus. Another passage, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down is Jeremiah 33, 22. Jeremiah 33, 22 talks about a day when God would multiply the offspring of David and the Levitical priests. He's talking about the day of the Messiah. He's talking about when Jesus Christ came. Who are those people? They're us. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. That's when he would multiply these people. For example, we read in the end of the Bible, Revelation 5, 9, and etc. says, And the angel sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus Christ, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This theme, again, is all throughout the Bible. All of these names are all throughout the Bible. Now, historically, the, role, the royal priesthood role was something the old covenant people of God were supposed to play in the world. Now, sometimes, you know, they did okay. You can read a few of those stories. You'll find them in the Old Testament. But a lot of the stories are about failure, about when they didn't do this job very well. But now the point is, is that with the new covenant people of God, we not only can play the role much better, but we can actually fully play it because we have the Holy Spirit within us to indwell us. And the significance of the role is much larger these days, because now our purpose is to actually take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. So our, we have this mediatorial role, if you will, being priests to the world. And there's three aspects uh, to being priests. Uh, and they're all actually earlier in First Peter. Um, we are priests to God, priests to the church, and priests to the world. 
When we talk about being priests to God, just earlier in chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's part of our worship of God is to, is to, is to give him praise for things and, and to sing of his greatness. And it includes all the influences of, in his, of the Spirit in our lives and the transformation that he does and cooperating and giving him the glory in our lives. That's one way in which we serve as a priest. Another way is toward one another in the church, to pray for one another, to minister to each other's needs. We talk a lot about, ever since the Reformation happened in the 16th century in Europe, we talk a lot about the priesthood of all believers. Um, And that's an important doctrine. And, uh, of course, in America, it's become just an excuse to be an individualist. But that's not what it means. It means that we actually submit to God's will to serve one another um, and to work together as a team. But then finally, being a priesthood means that we exist for the benefit of the world. The end of the book of Romans, we'll make this clear to you if you want to read Romans 15. Paul uses this language there. But we have access to God through Jesus Christ, and our whole point about declaring the gospel to other people is so they can have access to God through Jesus Christ as well. That's why we do it. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said that in ancient times, only one high priest was anointed. But now all Christians are anointed. So even he understood the point of mission of the church. And again, I want you to think about this extraordinary honor to be called royalty in the line of Jesus, to be called a priest after that line as well. And what's the purpose again? It's not so you can just feel good about yourself um, or sing about this over and over again. But what is the purpose? See, read it again. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the whole point. And then we get to the third term, a new holy nation. Now, of course, historically, the national identity of the Hebrews was formed in the Exodus. That's when he called them out, formed them as a nation, gave them the covenant terms that were given in Exodus 19, the Ten Commandments, but even more so, the whole book of the covenant is Exodus 19 to 24. You can read that one on your own, but those are the terms. Those are the terms under which they would be formed as a new nation. Now, again, here's another one of those um, highly politically charged terms these days to talk about a new holy nation. What is that? Well, it can't be identified, of course, with any contemporary earthly political structure. That's like the biggest mistake you could ever make in your life is to confuse those things. Becoming a member of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, makes us a citizen of heaven. the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. A member, so we are now members, through Jesus Christ, of an eternal nation that has yet to arise in its ascendancy in this world. You don't see it that way yet. But you will see it that day. Because when Jesus comes back, that's when he's going to fulfill his promise to us all. The meek shall inherit the earth. And then... The one true nation will crush them all, the kingdom of God. And that's who we belong to. And at the return of Jesus, it will all be ours. And so our national allegiance is first and foremost to that nation, to the nation of the kingdom of God. And then secondarily to whatever nation we are part of in this world. Now, this explains why, maybe you've run into these people too, but... uh, why at various times in history and, and even today, um, Christians can be accused of treason. 
you know, sort of, I mean, we just throw words around like that today in our culture. No one really cares. But in other places and other times, it's a very serious charge because Christians have a higher allegiance than to whatever kingdom of man they happen to be a part of at the moment. But the, the irony of the whole thing is that Christians tend to make the best citizens underneath almost any political structure that you could create. Maybe you've seen a lot of that. I mean, that's what we teach in various places around the world in the ministry I'm a part of. I mean, we go to all sorts of different places where there are different systems. But at the, ultimate, at the end of the day, we're teaching people really for the benefit of their own countries because they're going to become great citizens in their land. So this is a very important topic to deal with because uh, this dual citizenship, uh, it's never been easy and it never will be easy. So Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, talked about how we have dual citizenship. We are citizens as Christians of heaven, but we're also citizens of a kingdom on this earth under men. And we have to figure out how do we work through this relationship that we have two different allegiances, but one is definitely higher than the other. And, you know, this was very important to the Apostle Peter at the time and the people he was writing to. Uh, Chapters 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, they all talk about this. Because this is who he's writing to. It's a very unique group of people who received 1 Peter originally because they were all literally exiles. You see, the emperor Claudius had a great idea that he was going to go colonize some new land in Asia Minor. And, of course, you need people to do that. So he just sort of picks out a bunch of people, uh, ships them all over there, and says, you guys are going to establish my colony. Of course, Christians got swept up in this too, and and they're sent over there. And at this time in the Roman Empire, there was uh, social persecution was allowed. You know, they weren't being thrown to lions or anything yet. But the government turns a blind eye. And so when the book opens, elect exiles, and the book closes, talking about Babylon, is talking about the fact that these people who receive this letter are Christians undergoing social persecution where, where they're living. It's hard, it's hard living. I mean, think about even becoming a Christian. I mean, you don't even know the place you're going to. But then, you know, if you come out that you're a Christian, well, then people stop buying meat at your meat shop. People stop coming to you to have dinner with their friends. You know, we may think, some of us, oh, this is like ancient history. Well, I see it every single day. I'm in South Asia. This is exactly what happens there. You become a Christian, you're ostracized from your community immediately. So it's very, very prevalent. And so this dual citizenship, so it's hard for us as well where we live. It's always been difficult to live out in this world. And anyone who tells you they have a simple answer, you know that they don't know what they're talking about. Because life's hard. And there have been many examples of Christians who've tried to violently institute Christian political structures. Or they're hasty in what they do. Or they're stupid and foolish in the way they use the Bible. But then there are also great examples of people that are really humble and thoughtful and wise and intelligent and faithful in working out what it means to be a dual citizen. So may we select our heroes and our philosophies and our politics very carefully and be spiritually minded in doing so because notice the most important word in that little description. It's not nation. It's holy. It's being holy. That's the focus, being obedient. That's the whole point of being a chosen race and a royal priesthood is to serve the calling 
faithfully. So when you think about it, being part of a new holy nation that gives allegiance to Jesus Christ, it raises you above worldly politics while at the same time, it makes you most politically useful in this world. And again, what's the whole point? The whole point is that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Finally, the fourth name, new people of God. So this is the culmination of the first three terms, and now it's just all wrapped up, and you are the people of God. And we are his people for his treasured possession. Again, it comes from Exodus 19. Out from all the other peoples of the world. That's what God's doing, you know, and all the different people groups, tribal groups, ethno-linguistic groups, whatever you want to say. All these groups, God's picking out people for himself, forming his churches in these places. And forming a new people, bringing these people into the new people of God. And we've been called out for this relationship with God. Uh, being call, our calling out is very similar to the calling out of Abraham, the calling out in the Exodus, the calling out in the exile. We need to read all of the history of redemption as one story. And you know, as you read about these kinds of things in the Old Testament, this honor and this purpose of being chosen and being called out, then you're reminded really about what happened to you in Jesus Christ when he called you out. So, for example, you might read something in Deuteronomy 26 in your quiet time. And Yahweh has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations that he's made, and that you shall be a people holy to Yahweh your God as he promised. And you can do it on your own as you read through these kinds of passages, especially if you have First Peter in mind. You understand how to read the Old Testament. So finally, we get to the purpose at the very end. The purpose of the church is really that of Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I form for myself, my praise they will declare. That's exactly what, what Peter's talking about here. Now, Isaiah wasn't able to fulfill and see the fulfillment and even complete the praise when he wrote the prophecy, maybe he was looking forward to the fact that, you know, yes, God's going to get us out of exile. He's going to bring us back from the places we were dispersed, and it'll be a great time. And, of course, it was under Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding and the looking forward to the Messiah coming. But really what it's all looking forward to is far beyond that. It's looking to full redemption and the full salvation in Jesus Christ. And so our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's where we always start, at least close to the beginning. Anytime when we worship, anytime when we pray to our God or we do evangelism, I mean, our focus really shouldn't be on ourselves or other people's needs even. I mean, those get brought into the storyline, of course. But ultimately, our calling is just to declare how great God is. And I find that at least for myself and some of the guys I work with and train, that that's the place we need to begin because they work among peoples who are from all sorts of made-up human religions. They don't understand the truth of God and the revelation in Jesus Christ. And so I have to start about talking about who God really is, talking about all of his excellencies. And that's what we do then when we talk about how he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's personal too. It's not just a reality of history. I mean, the much greater exodus out of, out of sin is our own story. The much greater um, re exodus is in Jesus Christ. 
And notice the word that light is used. I mean, we were in darkness. These mean a lot of different things, these terms. Darkness means unholiness. Light means holiness. So we were called out of a life of being trapped in sin, its power, its corruption, its evil in our lives, and then we're brought into the freedom and the glory, and and our lives reflected differently. We live in the light now. Darkness is also a term that's used for ignorance. We used to be really ignorant of God until we read his revelation, and now we've been brought into the light of knowledge, and our knowledge continues to grow and increase as we study the scriptures. Darkness is also a symbol of being damned and outside of God's grace, where light is a symbol of salvation and what he brought into our lives, and that's where we live now. And so think about this undeserved honor of being called the people of God. I mean, all four of these names have the very same purpose. Why has God chosen you, made you a royal priest, put you in his kingdom, his nation, his holy nation, called you as his own part of his people, is so you can declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What is the purpose of Crossway Orange County? What's your reason for existence? Why are you here? It's all in this verse. It's so you can declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So finally, let's look at verse 10. We're supposed to be ever mindful of these realities, your apostle tells us. Verse 10 simply says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, the prophetic background is here. I told you I was going to give you a biblical theological understanding of mission from all throughout the Bible. Yeah, so we pretty much hit every book in the Bible. There's a few more. But Hosea, that's what he's talking about. Here's quoting Hosea. And Hosea chapter 2 or 2.23, that's a, a very clear reference. It says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So I don't know if you know the story of Hosea, it's a really fascinating one. But when he says, I will have mercy on no mercy, that was actually the name of his daughter. I mean, how would you like to be named no mercy? Yeah, not very cool. Um, And then his son was named not my people. But that was on purpose, is to make a point. Because the immediate historical reality under which Hosea was prophesying was God had basically disowned the northern tribes because they really weren't like his people anymore. I mean, you couldn't tell. They worshipped other gods. They didn't really worship him, and maybe they bring a bunch of idols into their services. And they lived immoral lives. They just adopted the, the culture, the sexual culture of the day. And, and they did evil. So there's nothing to separate them. It's obvious. So God had basically disowned them, and Hosea is sent as a prophet. So anyway, it's a very interesting story. You can read the whole thing on your own. But then there's a promise that's also given prior to this Hosea 1.10. It says, and it would start taking place after they come back from exile. Yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. The apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having been taught by the Lord Christ in the flesh himself, 
is the one who is writing this Holy Scripture in meditation and interpretation that is the proper interpretation of the prophet and telling us exactly what it means. It would go much, much further than just that simple historical reality of coming back from exile, but it would all be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. And this prophecy is a further indication that God wants people from all peoples of the earth. And it's just like with all the other prophecies, they all speak to the ultimate inclusion of the Gentiles. And that word Gentile, that just means nations or the peoples who aren't Jewish people. So that, that includes the rest of us, okay? that we would be a part of God's people. And our Apostle Peter is making this very clear that we make up this new rest, restored people of God. Our Apostle Paul makes the same argument from the very same passages. So here's a sample. I mean, there's so much. You can read the book of Romans on your own. But Romans 9, 22 and following. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, that's literally what Paul says. And he's quoting 2.23 and 1.10, the same ones the Apostle Peter is alluding to on your screen. So back to Romans. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And he's talking about saving among peoples that weren't chosen under the Old Covenant but now are brought in in Christ. And in the very place, Paul continues, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I mean, think about the messages of the Old Testament prophets and how much there is to learn from them for our spiritual benefit. It's astounding because they all talk about these new realities that would come into play when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come on the scene. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about this not a people, now the people. I mean, yes, it's a historical redemptive reality, and we can talk about it in terms of a theology. But, you know, it has very intense personal application, too, you know, because it speaks about you personally. It speaks about me. I mean, once before I knew Christ, yeah, I was not a people. No one's significant to God or the church or the world. But once Christ comes into our life and saves us, now we're part of the people of God to be recognized. Once we had not received mercy, yeah, God just let me run my life the way I wanted to. He lets people go full on in their sin often. But then when he captures you with his mercy and grace, well, now you have received mercy and forgiveness in these things. So these are not just talking about historical realities that unfold in God's purposes, but they're very purposeful because every single one of our conversions to Christ is a fulfillment of that prophecy. It's a fulfillment of it, a literal fulfillment of those prophecies. And it continues on as people get saved around the world. We've been reborn by God the Father himself to all the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. And so, so the mission was prophesied in the Old Testament. And every time that we're out there being involved in it, seeing people come to Christ, these prophecies keep getting 
progressively and repeatedly fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled until Christ gets all His glory and all His people for His full church. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, I want to read you this section. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down the flesh of the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments that were expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in the one body on the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." You see, we must always remember who we were and what we used to be in order to be able to make the comparison of who God has now made us and who he's yet to make us to be. And then even further on to consider what we will be made for all of eternity in Christ. It's by God's doing, his purposes in grace and his purposes in glory that we are now part of his people so the Apostle Peter is also reminding us to be ever mindful of these realities. Actually, this, sec- this ends the section in the book of Peter. It's meant to sort of be the culmination of what he's just been talking about. This passage, verses 9 and 10, is all about how we see ourselves and our place in the world in God's redemptive purposes. It will impact how you see yourself in your church. And you know, society, our society, especially that we live in today, they're going to label us very differently. They're not going to look at you and say, oh, it's so great that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They're not going to say those things or even nice things about you typically. They're going to have incorrect views of Christians, and it's their fault for having the incorrect view. It's not, your, it's not the fault of other people. If you, if you have the wrong view, get the right view. You know, they can go study and figure it out. But they're going to have the wrong view, and they have ulterior motives to malign and, and slander believers around the world. But, you know, when you think about that, it's never going to be any different. I mean, sometimes I'm surprised when I run into Christians that somehow they think that they can fix that. They're not going to fix that. I mean, children who, the people who hate the gospel and who hate Jesus Christ and love their own sin, they're not going to all of a sudden just praise you for how great of a person you are. Right? What did they do to Jesus? They slandered him from the first day of his ministry to the last day. So if it's that way with Jesus Christ, it's going to be that way with you and with me and all of our friends. But a passage like this then gives us strength 
and hope in the midst of that. We can go back to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 when we're maligned by people and we can find strength that gets renewed and a renewed joy and dignity. People want to strip you of your dignity and our purpose and our calling. The world wants to confuse us on that because they don't want it fulfilled. But our new identity in Christ obligates us to proclaim His excellencies. This is an amazing paragraph of Scripture. It is fully packed with God's work in redemptive history. And I hope I just showed you a little bit of that today. How many passages in the Old Testament the Apostle Peter is stringing together in just these phrases? It's like the whole Old Testament in one paragraph. It's amazing. So, yes... There were large realities that we looked at today, but they're also very, very personal. When did you join the people of God? I still remember when I was converted 36 years ago and joined the people of God on June 10th, 1984. Well, what's your story? Your story of not being a people, being a people. Your stories of God's mercies when you hadn't received it and all of a sudden you received God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Well, you can retell that story. You can retell that story to yourself in the presence of God in your quiet times. You can retell that story to people around you who haven't yet heard of the mercy of God. That's really one first main application of this passage, really, which is the application of every passage in the Bible, by the way. That's worship. That's the first and foremost application of every single passage of the Bible is to worship God. And then we can also remember that all four of these names, although you probably took some notes along the way, they're really all part of the same thing. They're all a part of that one purpose and why God has set us apart as a unique people of God. And so that that's what we would proclaim His excellencies. In other words, mission. It's all about mission for all the people of God. We're all on mission together as the church. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me close in prayer and pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do want to praise you and give you glory for your um, coming to earth for your taking on our frail humanity, our sinfulness on the cross, for redeeming us by your sacrifice, for granting us a righteousness that you earned that we could never earn, that we can stand in. We thank you, Father, for all this grace that you've extended to us and the realities that work in our lives by the power of the Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause um, Crossway Church and all the members here to continue to um, walk and who you've made them to be in Christ, all for his glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would make, uh, make this church community um, better worshipers and better missionaries. Uh, these are the two things that we greatly desire, as we've learned about this morning. And we pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.